because of my grandmother's influence and our family story, I tried to learn as much as I could about boarding school history. And so my approach was to go into government archives and look for letters that family members and students wrote themselves about what they were experiencing in schools and to emphasize Native people's own voices in that history. Bonjour, hello, welcome to Native Lights where Indigenous Voices Shine. I'm your host, Cole Primo. And I'm your other host, Leah Lem. Miigwech for joining us. Native Lights is a place for Native folks to tell their stories, to share their gifts, and how they found their purpose. So I'm really excited to do another conversation today. They're always fun, always enjoyable. So how are you doing, Cole? Great, great. How you, how you been? No, I'm, I'm really good. I am working my way through reading the recently released Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative Investigative Report. Uh, yes, so that is over 100 pages long. It is a very compelling read. The author is Brian Newland, the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs. And this report was brought about... Uh, about a year ago, it started under Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland, who announced the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative. So that directed the Department of Interior to undertake an investigation into federal boarding schools and those related consequences of that boarding school sy- system. And, you know, it spans decades, nearly two centuries. And, you know, the federal government was ultimately responsible for overseeing these boarding schools. And, you know, there there's a complex history there. Uh, you know, not only does it span time, but it spans regions and experiences. You know, some people thought it was, you know, a great time of life. Others thought others experienced far worse. The report... Basically, I don't know. Have you read it? Have you read some of it? I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm still I'm getting through it. I'm digesting it. I thought some of the the key findings, um, you know, when you look at a local level, that they found about 21 federal Indian boarding school sites in Minnesota, which uh, when you compare it to like other states, it's one of like the highest amount of uh, of these sites. Uh, I mean, like, why was why were there so many in Minnesota? Um, you know, questions like that. Like, what were they really trying to accomplish? Um, and obviously, what is the impact? Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to even, you can't measure it. And then there is, you know, the whole justice. How do you get justice out of this? Um, so mm-hmm. it's just a lot of a lot of things to, to think about, of course. I'm, 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 I'm assuming a lot of people in the community, in Native communities, are digesting it and it. It at least mm-hmm. brought back the conversation, uh, you know, and I know a lot of this is known already. And Brian Newland, the, again, the author, the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs, wrote in the report that this report confirms that the United States directly targeted American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian children in the pursuit of a policy of cultural assimilation that coincided with Indian territorial dispossession. So, I mean, 
was there any interest in the well-being of Native people? Or is it solely for the purpose of land and control? So there is that. And guess what? Well, you know, it's no secret to you, Cole, but today's guest is a prolific author, is a Northrop professor and former chair of the Departments of American Studies and American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota, Brenda Child. And she just received the Guggenheim Fellowship. And she's the author of a lot of books, let's say, including... Uh, one called Boarding School Seasons, American Indian Families, 1900 to 1940. And, you know, we'll link to her bio so you can see all of the other books that she's written. She holds a PhD in history from the University of Iowa. And of course, she was born on the Red Lake Ojibwe Reservation up here in northern Minnesota. I think also of note is she is our aunt. Just gotta make sure we we share that relationship. Um, she is our Uncle Steve Primo's spouse. Let's welcome Brenda Child. Welcome back. Uh, could you just, you know, introduce yourself and, you know, just uh, tell us where you're joining us from? Uh, my name is Brenda Child. I am Red Lake Ojibwe, and I'm a professor of American Studies and American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. We're here today because the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative investigative report has come out. So, you know, we, we started up at the top of the program here really highlighting that boarding schools were incredibly varied and people's experiences were incredibly varied from awful to wonderful and uh, uh, many in many experiences in between but what did seem to come through in this report and that Brian Newland assistant secretary uh, write writes that the the findings really confirm that the U.S. targeted Native children with this policy of cultural assimilation that was done in concert with Indian territorial dispossession. And it sounds like land is really kind of the the point of this. So can you talk a bit about that era that boarding schools were operating in? Yeah. And well, how boarding schools and the act of assimilation was viewed by the U.S. government? Yeah, well, I like the particular quote um, that you've chosen from the report. Uh, and I guess what I would like to kind of emphasize about boarding schools, as you suggest, um, they experience varied widely for American Indians who attended government boarding schools. We usually think of the boarding school eras beginning in 1879 with Carlisle, uh, the school in Pennsylvania, the one that my great-grandfather attended. And we tend to think of it as concluding, that is historians, in the 1930s under FDR because that's the moment when American Indians began moving into public schools. And so since the 1930s and FDR, public school education has dominated Indian education. But during that half century, this is the way I look at the history as a, as, as a scholar, 
during that half century, assimilation was really the big project of the federal government. And it was, I think that statement by in Newland's report, I like a lot because it does tie the boarding schools to the land policies of the late 19th and early uh, 20th century. I think for those of us from Ojibwe country in particular, we have to look at that era as being, you know, that was our, that was really our, our tough period here in Minnesota and in the Great Lakes. It was the era, uh, especially after the reservations were created and after this uh, policy known as the General Allotment Act of 1887. Here in Minnesota, we had special legislation from 1889, and we call it the Nelson Act. This is what kind of broke up the old systems of land tenure on the reservation. The Allotment Act, this is a complex story, but it was amended in various ways that allowed for Native people to lose uh, possession of their allotment. And I'll just give you one example. Um, my grandfather had uh, Fred Aganash uh, was from the Mille Lacs region. He was from Big Sandy Lake, and he left that area because a lot of the Mille Lacs Ojibwe were being forced out in central Minnesota. And he was supposed to go to White Earth and take an, an allotment. He did this along with his brother and his father took an allotment. As it turns out, he met and married my grandma, grandmother and, be, and we all became Red Lakers. So, but he, he was, and he went and settled at Red Lake. He raised a family there with my grandmother. And in later years, he found out that the allotment that he had at White Earth was taken because he didn't pay taxes on his allotment, on his land uh, in Northern Minnesota. My grandfather was an Ojibwe-speaking person. He didn't know very much about taxes and, and uh, that sort of thing. And even the courts in later years found out, um, I wouldn't say found out is the right way to describe it, but they, it was, it was um, that land had been illegally taxed. And so my grandfather shouldn't have lost his allotment, but a lot of people through complex legal circumstances ended up losing their allotment. And we often tell the story of White Earth in Minnesota because the tribe there ended up owning um, 8% of the land that was their original reservation that was to be the homeland for all these dispossessed um, Ojibwe people moving to the White Earth Reservation. And in fact, they were just like my grandfather, dispossessed a second time. Wow. Yeah. So that's incredible to hear. And it really speaks a lot to my next question, which is that many of us, of course, have family who attended boarding schools. And was there anything unique specifically with boarding schools related to Minnesota and the Ojibwe and Dakota people here? Yeah, well, I don't know if you would say unique. I think in many ways, Ojibwe and Dakota people in Minnesota experienced what other American Indians experienced, and that is um, the forest acculturation. Many uh, Ojibwe, as well as Dakota people, ended up at the Carlisle School, the first of the off-reservation boarding schools. And they also attended many other schools in the Midwest as well. And in fact, the school that my grandmother went to at Flandreau uh, in South Dakota, she was there in the very left in the early 1920s. Um, that was very much an Ojibwe and Dakota school, given its location. There were a lot of 
Ojibwe and Dakota students who went together to the boarding school at Flandreau. But I kind I want to emphasize, you know, the boarding schools were very similar to one another. And when I talk about boarding school myself, a little bit different from that report, I'm talking about the 50-year period when forced acculturation dominated federal policymaking, during which time 25 off-reservation boarding schools were established by the United States government. And that was the kind of school that my grandparents um, both attended. And they really were um, about cultural assimilation, but the idea had kind of taken hold among policymakers. I mean, this is the underlying objective of boarding schools is that native people aren't gonna really need a homeland anymore, right? They're gonna enter the mainstream. They're gonna become citizens of the United States. They're gonna speak English. My grandmother was trained as a domestic servant. And so they're gonna have great jobs like that. And, and they're not going to need um, to live as tribal people uh, in their tribal communities. And so the idea was to kind of separate Native children from their families. In this era, it was really about separating the Ojibwe or other American Indian family from their children because the parents were thought to be a negative influence on their children. Wow. So really that separation then of the children from culture and and that line, that generational yeah. line of culture. So for this and this report, boarding schools had criteria uh, in order to be considered a, a boarding school within their scope. And that was providing on-site housing or overnight lodging, provided formal academic or vocational training, and was described as receiving federal government funds and then also was operational before 1969. And then I also saw in the report that that spanned nearly two centuries. So what you're looking at is a bit of a concentrated part of the era. It's difficult to um, put into one group every kind of school that ever served Native people. Um, the Catholic Church was very active in Indian education in the country as well as in Minnesota, but those were separate institutions from the federal government. There may have been a time in the 19th century when the federal government provided some money to religious organizations, but it wasn't constant, right? They had their own, the United States, system of Indian education. Some of those were on-reservation boarding schools, which presumably children attended before they went someplace like Carlisle, Haskell, or Flandreau. Um, so I, I see the, you know, you talk to a historian about 150 years, right? That's, that's a big time frame. And so you might say, gosh, let, let me tell you what happened in the United States from the Civil War up till 1969. You wouldn't look at that as one continuous era of the same ideas, the same policies, the same laws, the same way of living. Ideas were, were very different. And for me, as a scholar, I always looked at that 50-year period up into, from Carlisle to FDR as being the, the half century when the boarding school policy dominated in the United States. But it was also the same era that the allotment policy dominated policymaking in the U.S. 
So you have to look at these two systems as 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 going hand in hand with one another. And um, as far as other schools that existed um, later, even if some of the boarding schools continued, right? Sherman Indian School, Wapaton, other boarding schools continued, but they really didn't have the same policies as they had in the 19th century. When the Indian Wars were taking place, right? Carlisle kids, their parent, the Apache children of the prisoners of war were sent to Carlisle. And so I look at that as a very distinctive generational experience that in some ways was not shared by later generations of American Indian people. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today, we're speaking with Brenda Child, Northrop professor and former chair of the Departments of American Studies and American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. She was born on the Red Lake Ojibwe Reservation in northern Minnesota. So you've mentioned uh, Carlisle uh, several times already. Could you talk, uh, you know, more specifically about Carlisle and its influence, you know, on the overall boarding school model? Yeah, Carlisle, because it was so early in the system, um, came first. And many people know that Colonel Pratt, who was a military man, was the person who kind of designed the boarding school program. Again, they were dealing with um, the Indian Wars at the time. And this is why you see Apache children as well as children from the Northern Plains, right? The Lakota people were involved in active military resistance against the United States. And some of them were the early students at the Carlisle Indian School. Um, Carlisle also had went through various eras until it closed down um, around the era of the First World War. And it, you know, they designed the program so that children would receive kind of a basic elementary school education and then ideally spend half their day or maybe the summer months in what they called the outing program. And that was to be the vocational training. Maybe young kids, um, guys might go out and work on local farms. Young girls were expected to be um, domestic servants and to learn that kind of labor. So that was kind of the model, the Carlisle model that other boarding schools adopted than the other schools that followed in the federal system. Most of them weren't in the East. They were closer to native populations in the in the Midwest or even as far west as Oregon and California. Carlisle had, a, like I say, had another kind of uh, distinctive era as time went on because they were known for having really great sports teams at school. And Carlisle, you know, the whole athletic story of boarding schools is another kind of narrative all its own. In some ways, this, the programs were first established because they thought that there was something wrong with Indian bodies and that they needed to kind of build up their uh, stamina and their, and their um, you know, their athleticism because Indian people died quite a bit at the turn of the century, right? We were dying of uh, smallpox. And then during the boarding school era, the big killer was tuberculosis. And so people at the time reasoned that Indian bodies were inferior. This is why they died so easily. And so having an athletic program was was something that was good for Indian people. That view changed in the 20th century. 
And it's interesting because Carlisle at one point becomes really known for one of the most famous Indian athletes of the 20th century, Jim Thorpe, and their football program was just astonishing. It was great. And they played against the major um, football teams, college teams of that era, which also tells you something about boarding school because the young people, you know, I sometimes say young, I sometimes say children or young people, but remember that many of the students were older in government boarding school and they were college age, right? Jim Thorpe and those um, folks who played um, football for the Carlisle teams were older college age students. How was the quality of education in general, yeah. because it seems like the yeah. you know, technology was changing, mm-hmm. but maybe the the trades that were being taught, were they keeping up? I don't think so. I think they were teaching Indian people kind of old fashioned trades, right? Blacksmithing. Yeah. Here the United States is industrializing and they're teaching Native people rather quaint um, sort of trades. And you have to think about class issues as well, right? They weren't training them. Oh, and the really bright ones can go on to become doctors and lawyers. I mean, that wasn't in the cards for Native people. So it was a a way of treating education. So Native people can become citizens of the United States and and get jobs, but they're going to do it as kind of this, you know, as part of the working class. And in that way, you know, it benefits American society in a way, but not so much. I don't know. It's, It's hard, you know, hard to say. There were some people who learned vocational trades. You know, Haskell had an excellent printing department, for example, and that was kind of sought after. But I would say um, the education was somewhat uneven. My grandmother, who went to Flandreau, was, it was a pretty ordinary of the government boarding schools. That was um, really the place that she learned English. And I know um, we were fortunate in our family because my my grandparents never gave up speaking Ojibwe, speaking Ojibwe, and they raised all their children with Ojibwe as their first language. But my grandmother came bilingual, and she knew how to write letters and communicate her ideas. And in the reservation system of that era, it was extraordinarily helpful if someone in the family could write um, and, and deal with the bureaucracy. So we're, you know, discussing this report and the the need for it. What do you see as the the need for this and the truth and reconciliation? Because there are unmarked burial sites, and you know, so evidence that there is that it wasn't all a great experience. What are your thoughts about that? I do feel it's very important for for Americans and also American Indian people in particular to know about this history uh, that assimilation dominated in federal policymaking toward Indians. It's important to understand what was the, the ideas behind the boarding school era. I myself, you know, um, my dissertation in graduate school, you know, because of my grandmother's influence and our family story, I tried to learn as much as I could about boarding school history. And so my approach was to go into government archives and look for letters 
that family members and students wrote themselves about what they were experiencing in schools and to emphasize Native people's own voices in that history. I think it's tremendously important that we know the history, American Indian history, and especially of the boarding school era. When I think about the genocide that took place, there were children who died at school. I wrote, I'm, I think I'm one of the early people to have written about children. It was primarily due to tuberculosis. Um, some children died at school. Some children were sent to TB sanitariums and others were, um, you know, languishing and the school sent them home to their families. This was the big era of tuberculosis. It was a scourge in boarding schools as well as on reservations. There were a lot of kids who died in the, in the influenza epidemic of 1918-20, which was sort of the opposite of today's pandemic in that it primarily affected young people in the prime of their lives, right? Making it really different from what's going on now. So that was, um, you know, that was a very kind of tragic time. But when I think about the larger issues and what do we, you know, what can we do or what, how do we hold the federal government in particular accountable for boarding schools? I think it has to do with the big dispossession that was behind the boarding school policy. So as a Red Lake person, we've been talking for many decades about this little portion of up the upper lake, the eastern portion of our upper lake that was taken from us during the boarding school era. Our, our hereditary chiefs said that they never agreed to that, um, to losing that part of our reservation. If you talk to the Lakota people and about the Black Hills, they would say, you know, they ignored our treaty. We won our case, but the land has never been restored. And every tribe in the, in the country would have a similar story. So I think the reconciliation has to be in something real, right? It has to be in real estate because that's what we're interested in. It's a very concrete way of um, recognizing the real damage that was done to Indian people at the time. You know, I'm not looking myself for apologies. That doesn't go far enough for me. I think we need to talk to tribes about what they have lost in the boarding school era that could still be returned to them. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're speaking with Brenda Child, Professor of American Studies and American Indian Studies. She was born on the Red Lake Nation in northern Minnesota, and we're talking with her about her response to the recent Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative investigative report. I guess I was also curious, you know, just of your overall thoughts on the report and like, you know, if there's... things that it could do better if things, you know, as it, as the investigation yeah. continues. Uh, well, you know, his, like I say, historians are very particular. We're very, you know, we're the people who, this is the way to talk about it. We distinguish between eras. It's our job to kind of think about change and, and how change took place over time. And so that's kind of how I approach the boarding school era. One thing that I think is very um very good about the report is that it incorporates Native Hawaiian 
history into that era. And that's something that I think most of us were not doing. You know, I know I wasn't doing that when I first went into government archives in the 1980s and started looking at boarding school history. Of course, I was more concerned about the region I'm from and Ojibwe and Dakota people and what their experiences were with school. But I think that's, you know, the the purview of, of the government and indigenous people are in Alaska and they're in Hawaii. And perhaps we haven't done as good a job of incorporating their, their stories into the history of Indian education. Besides your, your book uh, and this, you know, first volume of the investigative report, I'm just curious if you had thoughts on other resources, experts that people can look into for more education on the subject. What I always recommend to people is our exhibit at the Heard Museum in Phoenix. It has been there for um, 20 years. It opened in November of 2000. And when I was still, you know, I hadn't published my book yet. And we were working on that exhibit um, down at the Heard Museum. And we wanted to tell the story of Indian boarding schools. At the time we were doing that work, there were still people around who had um, attended the Phoenix Indian School. and, And so we had a lot of great interviews too. So... Yeah, I would recommend the the exhibit at the Heard Museum, which is called Away From Home. Um, and we went back in um, a, few, a few years ago with the help of an NEH grant and updated the exhibit. So that's what I would recommend. I am also um, a big fan of um, memoir, American Indian memoir. I think for Minnesota, it's incredibly important to read um, Charles Eastman's biography of um, I like the deep woods to civilization quite a bit. You can even just read that online because it's um, an older book. Um, And so he talks about what it was like to experience and be a, a young child during the Dakota war and the decisions his family were facing when the only option or alternative after his father got out of prison um, was to convert to Christianity and go to boarding school and become a farmer. And that's what his family did, again, as a strategy of survival. And so he went off and ended up having a very distinguished career. But those were tough choices. And you can kind of really see what that generation like Eastman were facing. Great. Well, Chimigwech... Brenda Child for taking time to chat with us. Really important conversation. And I think you provide a great perspective as a historian and scholar and tribal member. So miigwech. Yes. Thank you all too. Brenda Child, really wonderful resource, really wonderful mind. And I really like her approach to the topic because it's it's really embracing the complexities of the boarding school era and not trying to overgeneralize, instead narrowing down on the most impactful time uh, when it comes to land and dispossession. And, uh, you know, I think she has an interesting perspective when it, as a historian. Yeah, and I can definitely see, you know, the critiques of a report that tries to investigate an entire long span, centuries, like you said, um, and you got to 
keep in mind that there's not only these varied schools, but over time, these things change and there's, uh, you know, a different perspective. There's different mission to these schools. Um, so it was great hearing about those things and things that we should, you know, take note of. Yeah. And also I want to point out that she focused on the voices of those who went through the boarding schools, reading the letters and highlighting their voices um, because they are the ones who know intimately what happened at the boarding schools. So yeah, very, very great conversation. Always appreciative of her time. So thank you to Brenda Child. Brenda Child is a Northrop professor and former chair of the Departments of American Studies and American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. She was born at the Red Lake Ojibwe Reservation in northern Minnesota. And we have links to the investigative report and to some of the resources that Brenda recommended. And of course, you can always hear this episode again by searching for Native Lights wherever you find podcasts or at minnesotanativenews.org slash Native Lights. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech for listening. Gigawabamen. Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine, is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.